one, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Welcome again to the Green Left Podcast. My name is James Weiner and we're broadcasting today from the Green Left Studios in Ultimo, Sydney, on the land of the Gadigal people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Today we have an interview with a very special guest, Alex Wansborough. As well as being a contributor to Green Left, Alex is a cultural theorist lecturing at Sydney University. He's also author of the book, Capitalism and the Enchanted Screen, Myths and Allegories in the Digital Age. And he's recently written an article for Green Left that we're going to be talking about today entitled Struggling for Eco-Socialism in the Time of Elon Musk. Alex, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm I'm very pleased to be here. And um, before we get started, uh, just uh, touching on your book, give us us one great movie uh, recommendation, either... Uh, well, of course, everyone's watching it at home, streaming now. What, what should what should we go and what should we uh, sit back and watch tonight after we've listened to this podcast? Well, I think, um, although not necessarily about digital media, um, a film I'd really recommend is one by Boots Riley, who identifies as a communist. He made the film "Sorry to Bother You." It's a really excellent depiction of, for example, the pressures of capitalism. Um, and the need to sort of unionize and sort of create a, a, a change to the system. So I think that would be an excellent film to watch if you're a socialist. Um, yeah, so... I, I 100% concur. It's, it's just a great movie as well as having great politics and um, uh, it's, it's a must-see. And uh, I think it's freely available on one of those uh, streaming services right now, but definitely a must-see. Well, let's get back to uh, your article, Struggling for eco-socialism in the time of Elon Musk. Um, I don't want to make it too much about the uh, the man for whom the article is named for, but um, uh, your article points out that we're in a time of digital accumulation in which the capitalist elite are becoming more wealthy at an astounding rate. And while some of these platform capitalists do actually perform economic fun- functions, I mean, like Amazon actually delivers stuff, um, is Elon Musk's fortune just a function of a, of a green tech hype bubble? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting question. Um, certainly, for example, um, uh, I, I think his name's, uh, you know, Michael uh, Burry, for, who was depicted by Christian Bale in the movie Big Short, which is also a film maybe uh, view, uh, listeners might want to uh, watch, which is on Netflix. Um you know, Michael Barry had predicted the uh, housing bubble, um, and he has claimed that uh, you know Tesla's stock is currently sort of a, a bubble, um, uh, you know, ready to burst, and has said things like uh, "enjoy it while it lasts" to investors. So, um, and you know, of course, Michael Barry was someone who was scoffed at and sort of laughed at when he predicted the uh, housing bubble in two thousand seven, which of course triggered for a global financial crisis. Uh, at the same time, and, uh, you know, of course, there have been, um, you know, possible echoes too with uh, previous tech bubbles, famously for dot-com 
bubble um, of the 90s, which continued into the um, early 2000s. Um, but I would also note that capitalists do sometimes find a way to generate actual profit from um, from uh, financial speculation. Um, and of course, Musk is seeking sort of uh, sort of collaborations with governments and so on. So it's not impossible that he might find some way to generate a profit. Tesla was, I believe, for the first time able to generate a profit um, within the financial year um, last year, uh, in part since its founding in 2003, uh, in part, I believe, because Musk was quite happy to sort of exploit workers. He insisted that workers come to work during COVID and lockdown um, and sought exemptions to allow workers to, to, to be exploited in that way. Um, and certainly his um, stock sort of skyrocketed as well as other tech giants during the time of COVID. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Indeed. My, uh, I, rec- I recollect reading some data that Tesla only produces about 10,000 vehicles a year, which compared to... Um, the likes of Ford and Chrysler is, is, an, is an incredibly small number, but um, uh, yeah, he certainly is good at getting government contracts. Um, that's one thing he does seem to excel at. Um, we see Elon Musk on, you know, on Joe Rogan's show, smoking weed and being a clown, and 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 yet I've had serious-minded liberal types tell me how clever they think he is. He seems like some kind of avatar for a, a woke green capital of the future. Why, where does this desire to embody a tech solution to our ecological problems, where, where is that coming from, do you think? Well, I mean, I also, uh, you, you noted uh, for production of cars and the fact that, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tesla is not actually that productive when it comes to actually selling uh, green cars. And also note on the issue of the bubble that uh, General Motors is now pumping billions of dollars into developing electric cars. Um, on your note about the whole sort of uh, aura around Musk, I think part of this feeds into just generally sort of capitalist hype. So, for example, we tend to want to attribute, um, with with regards to labour and production, a singular sort of figure, right? But of course, as Marx understood, um, technology requires a lot of different hands, a lot of different minds and so on, to develop, you know, um, it's not just developed by some sort of tech genius. But Musk has been very good at sort of pitching himself as this tech genius. Uh, he's appeared in the second Iron Man film, for example, as himself, um, and has welcomed likenesses to Tony Stark. You know, for those who are familiar with the Marvel movies, um, you know, Tony Stark being the sort of cyborgian hero. Iron Man. So that is certainly um, part of it. The other thing is too, there is a sense in which people are very disenchanted with capitalism. Uh, People find that they feel as if there's no future. So there's a famous statement um, often quoted uh, from Frederick Jamison, Slavoj Žižek and Mark Fisher that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. And I think part of the appeal of Musk is that he does have a sort of futuristic branding. 
he talks about there being a future. You know, he does challenge on some level for consensus sort of view that we're all doomed, right? He talks about the possibility of establishing an intergalactic empire. Um, you know, often Silicon Valley tech heads like Musk have a real trouble with the concept of mortality. They don't like the idea of dying. You know, and Musk entertains that thought experiment put forward by uh, Nick Bostrom that maybe we're all living in a computer simulation, right? So there's different ways in which Musk, as a sort of capitalist, wants to believe in this sort of infinite growth and sort of go against the uh, second law thermodynamics and deny the sort of heat death of the universe, um, which is, you know, built into the universe. Um, and so Musk really wants to, in a sense, save the possibility of capitalism. He wants to sort of frame himself in this heroic way. And on some level, I do think it probably is refreshing to liberals and centrists to see someone with vision who's saying it's not all doom and gloom. You know, we, we shouldn't just manage capitalism. Instead, we should find ways to think outside the box and all those sorts of tedious corporate cliches. Um, even some of Musk's outrageous behavior feeds into that concept, that Sherlock Holmes concept of the genius, a person who's a bit of a prat. Because, you know, famously, you know, when Musk is smoking weed on Joe Rogan, you know, he kind of looked a bit ridiculous. You know, he had that sort of flushed face. Um, he said rather offensive things in tweets. You know, he cryptically said things like, you know, take for real red pill or whatever it was, something along those lines. Um, I think that in a way what Musk provides is that branding of capitalism not only is hip and cool, but is something futuristic. And he keeps proposing these kinds of thought bubbles which are to sort of open up for realm of possibility, uh, to say, no, humanity is not dead. No human will can do something and achieve something. You know, whereas, you know, someone like Mark Fisher, the theorist Mark Fisher, uh, framed capitalism as entering the stage of capitalist realism, where there was this sort of melancholia about capitalism, like we were resigned to live under capitalism. Capitalism was this breaking apart system, a system that wasn't very good, but was still better than all the other systems that's been tried. You know, the famous Winston Churchill quote, or quote attributed to Churchill, was that democracy is the worst system, except for all the others. Um, you know, and, and more or less, that's kind of a prevailing view um, of liberals and so on with regards to capitalism. You know, it's better than the Soviet Union. It needs a bit of management. It isn't great, we know that, but... Uh, anything else would be worse and, and so on. So I think that that's a key sort of uh, element to Musk's appeal. I would also note though that some of what Musk, when Musk does seem particularly woke, is when he sort of criticizes people like Mark's, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, famously he shared a tweet from Sasha Baron Cohen uh, of Borat fame, uh, where he, you know, uh, Cohen was a criticizing uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook and Musk sort of echoed those sorts of criticisms or implied a sort of echoing of these criticisms but of course uh, Zuckerberg and Musk uh, don't get along they're kind of rivals one of um, a SpaceX's uh, rocket launches ended up uh, destroying uh, one of uh, Zuckerberg's satellites in the process and Zuckerberg publicly criticized Musk and uh, Musk's stock went down I, uh, in SpaceX and also I believe in Tesla. 
after Zuckerberg's criticism. So in light of then the, the, the scandal of Cambridge Analytica and so on with regards to Facebook and for role Facebook um, played in that, when, Zuck, uh, when Zuckerberg is criticized by Musk, um, I wouldn't, I, I would be wary about discounting economic factors, the fact that ca big capitalists are in fact in com competition with one another. And I think that that's something to, to keep in mind. Um, I also think there's a tension within, of course, the idea of green capitalism because uh, capitalism seeks to actually profit from crises, right? So the possibility of um, profiting from a crisis is something that, you know, undercuts or undermines the concept that capitalism will necessarily save the day because, of course, there's no reason that a mid-ecological catastrophe and even, you know, among apocalyptic sort of situations, capitalism would find a way to profit. I mean, after all, it's profited, uh, you know, for top capitalists have profited a great deal from COVID. So it's not impossible for them to find a way to profit. So we see this tension with Musk. Um, I say in the article that Musk wants to save the world, right? He wants to save the planet, but he also wants to save humanity from a dying planet, you know? Um, and, and so there is this tension between that idea of uh, trying to rescue the world and the reality of Musk. I mean, Musk, uh, for example, uh, the Gigafactory in Berlin, the Berlin Gigafactory of Musk's, ended up needing uh, for clearing a forest, for example, right? Uh, his rocket launchers do damage to the ozone layer. It creates light pollution. Um, and a lot of them, of course, uh, fail and so create detritus both in outer space um, and on the Earth. And so there's that sort of idea with, with of course, with the tech heads like Musk, um, not even the sky's the limit for them, right? <laughs> they want to colonize everywhere. But this is based on some of those sorts of dreams of infinite growth, which, which are sort of built into capitalism to some degree, um, I, would, I would argue. There's a recent... Um a recent World Trade Organization future report uh, cites glowingly a, a future where we will own nothing but have access to everything. Um, you talk about in your article neo-feudalism and the dystopian future that platform capitalists have planned for us. Tell us a bit more about this and, and how is it already happening and, and what to look out for. How do we know, okay. when, how do we know when we're becoming, uh, uh, you know, neo-peasants? Well, I mean, there are those who would argue we've, we've already become neo-peasants on some level. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's interesting because, of course, um, someone like Musk does sometimes have a disdain toward uh, ordinary people and, and, and you know, who, who challenge him on Twitter, right? Um, there is this idea in which, and increasingly, uh, some people like Musk might resemble these sorts of mad kings or kings that are in a way distant from 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 for commoners, as it were. Uh, but I think that there's a you know a, a great theorist of neo feudalism um, is Jody Dean. Uh, while there are other theorists, I really like her formulations. Um, and one way that she's talked about, of course, the theme of neo feudalism is the fact that. You have all these different online spaces where we all contribute, and yet we don't actually generate any wealth for ourselves from contributing to, for example, Facebook and all these online platforms. And for wealth, kind of, uh, you know, funnels all the way to, you know, uh, someone like Zuckerberg. 
um, you know, as our data becomes sold. So there's a sense in which online, you know, we do depend on online spaces for a number of reasons. And, and one of those reasons, of course, is that during a time of COVID, people need to order things online. You know, when there's lockdowns and so on, you can't, you sh it would be ideal not to go to the shops and risk your health and others, right? So uh, increasingly we do depend on um, online methods of um, purchasing and so on. Um, more and more uh, technologies are rented rather than bought. So for example, you know, I have to rent uh, Microsoft Word. Uh, I own an Apple computer, so I have to sort of rent Microsoft Word. Uh, Photoshop, you can no longer buy. It has to be rented. So increasingly, um, and of course, a lot of people can't afford a phone, so they have to sort of, um, you know, pay, pay back for phones uh, in, in sort of installments. It's worth noting, too, that something like the Internet was publicly developed. Um, the CSIRO was uh, crucial in developing Wi-Fi technology. The Internet descends from ARPANET, uh, which was developed by the US military. Um, and so what we, we have of these, these, uh, this technology, which was developed from a range of different mines and workers, uh, which indeed requires actual labor and work because, you know, the internet seems like this invisible, um, immaterial entity, but of course, much of it is actually conveyed through these tiny cables that run through the oceans and seas, uh, connecting different nations. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a sense in which we own less and less space, um, and capitalism is defaulting into feudalism. I don't think that it's necessarily, you know, wise to frame, um, in a way, I think economic systems always resemble something of a trace of the system that comes before. So like Marx, for example, I th and, and Engels um, and others claim that even communism would, would have traces of liberalism in it, right? Uh, you know, for an, a new stage of development would still on some level resemble the previous stage, right? Uh, Marx, when he was talking about capitalism, he talked about it being haunted by the ghosts of feudalism, right? Uh, we are haunted not just by for living, but by for dead Marx, ominously put in capital, right? Or, or said in capital. Uh, similarly, I think that on some level, capitalism is becoming increasingly authoritarian. Um, I'm not exactly sure what direction capitalism will go, because, you know, obviously we've seen the rise of strong, strong men figures. Um, or, uh, but we've also seen this sense in which increasingly, you know, of course, digital technology has been privatized, you know, uh, even our data, which reflects sometimes our most private thoughts, uh, is owned, right? Almost nothing on the internet is free. Um, everything is kind of being colonized and privatized. Um, and increasingly, uh, there's this constant threat of automation and losing one's job and so on. So what what this means in the sense in which we can no longer own but must rent, and this 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 tendency to rent is is true not just online spaces but in actual spaces. I mean, it's very hard to afford a house in Sydney, right? Um, you know, uh, the average house costs over a million dollars. So it means that people increasingly can only sort of survive through through rent, and I think that that's 
part of neo-feudalism. I'd also point out too that there are those sorts of libertarian uh, right-wing tech people who actually believe in the dismantlement of government but what they want to do is not destroy the state but multiply the state by turning every estate into a state. So they have these sorts of visions where you'd have these you know glorious sort of mansions and and they'd privatize you know for police and for military so and for fire um, services and so on so that each estate would have all these people working on it right um, presumably for morsels uh, as it were you know not not actually owning anything it would everything would be owned by you know for mega rich in such a vision so I mean, right-wing libertarianism is not very libertarian at all because it simply wants to create more states, you know. Um, So I think that would also be a horrific sort of image. I mean, Noam Chomsky is described as being so horrible a tyranny that it wouldn't be able to survive longer than five minutes, but who knows, right? Um, (laughs) Amid, you know, I mean, there are political scientists who are being employed to, to frame what might happen with um, climate change, you know, I remember reading one political scientist, I can't remember his name, though, sadly, but he, he was a, right, a right-wing political scientist, and he said, oh, don't worry, for poor won't be able to rebel and overturn capitalism, because we'll be just struggling to survive, <laughs> right? Meanwhile, for wealthy, we'll just all have air conditioning, right? Um, and, I mean, this is, you know, a, a very scary vision, but um, it's not totally incredible to me. It, it might happen. Who knows? You know, there's a lot of different possibilities, but, but that would be one particularly dystopian future. Yeah, indeed. Um, it's really an excellent piece, and um, you draw on the writings of uh, Marx and Engels in your piece. And I've heard, um, I've heard right, right-minded liberals in some online discussions suggest that you know Marx could not have foreseen the impact technology on our political economy today but as you point out uh, Marx had plenty to say about technology's impact on labor that can be mapped onto today's world um, tell us tell us a little about how uh, how how you see that how you see some of Marx and Engels writing on technology applying to today's kind of uh, neo-feudalist hellscape yeah I mean Firstly, I, I would like to sort of acknowledge that there are some key differences between, of course, the 19th century um, and the 21st century. One is that Marx was writing at a time when advanced technologies could only be purchased by the very wealthy. And that's also true today in terms of the means of production. So sometimes you hear media theorists claiming that the means of production have been sort of democratized and that everyone owns them, you know, which of course is not true at all. Uh, we don't own almost anything to do with the internet, for example. But it is quite true that high-tech gadgetry now fits into our pockets. Um, Benjamin Noyce, a philosopher, said something quite interesting, and I'm not sure if I'm quoting him quite correctly, but it was something to, to this effect, which was that, uh, you know, Marxist day, we were um, all sort of enslaved in factory machines, but now some of us carry... Uh, for means of our enslavement in our pocket in form of phones um, and laptops. And we do find that people um, are increasingly uh, laboring from home and so on. Uh, this is, you know, what, what, what is often called cognitive labor, right? Labor that's based on uh, intellectual forms of production rather than 
simply sort of physical, physically draining forms, uh, you know, like working in a factory, for example. Uh, but curiously, I think, you know, of course, there has been a return to factory work in developed nations like the US in the form of Amazon warehouses. Uh, but I also do think that there's a way in which Marx predicts the way that technology uh, isn't used to minimize work, but to find new ways of extracting labor. You know, what Marx calls dead labor, because there's something deadening about machinic, uh, machinic forms of production and machinic sort of and inhuman levels of output, right? So, for example, during COVID, it was found that people not only work long at home, but also sort of work harder. You know, there's that sort of guilt of, you know, not only do you have more meetings to attend, but, you know, there's that sort of sense of, oh, you can do this task at any time, but that means that you actually end up doing more work, right? Um, and more tasks are, are set and so on. So um, this would not surprise um, Marx at all that that uh, labor is being extracted further. Another great insight of Marx is, of course, the way that automation is used as a threat right, um, to workers. So you do sometimes hear Amazon workers actually in a very servile way expressing gratitude to Jeff Bezos for their exploitation because they, they say, well, you know, Bezos could just employ machines to do our work, right? Um, you know, a lot of Amazon workers, of course, are resisting Bezos. I'm not implying that the majority would, would, would say this. But, you know, I did read one article written by an Amazon employee where they were saying, you know, but Bezos could replace us with machines. You know, we're lucky to have this work, right? Um, and I think that that is uh, that 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 does speak to that threat that Marx talked about, where the machine becomes a weapon to exploit workers by simply threatening their redundancy, right? Um, and as I as I mentioned, all this technology w is publicly developed, or a lot of the technology has been publicly developed. Um, labor is social labor, which means you can't isolate it in terms of one worker. Like in the past, you might be able to say someone made a product, right? They made, they were able to carve a table. You know, sometimes people even would chop down the tree themselves, right? And and then condition and treat for wood and all of that, right? But nowadays, almost everything that's made and everything that's produced depends on multiple hands and multiple minds going into its creation, right? It's not something that can be located and just said, this person made this item, right? Um, and, you know, if we look at the parts in the iPhone and the way it travels all around the world and so on, um, and is made in various different, you know, exploitative conditions in different factories and so on, you can't simply say, you know, it's the creation of Tim Cook or, 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 or uh, Steve Jobs or someone like that, right? It has to then be, um, you know, so there's a social level of um, creation there, right? And, you know, this speaks to the need for these technologies to be socialized for us all to benefit from them, given that, you know, they were funded publicly and so on to begin with. Right. So in many ways, I think this speaks to the need for, you know, for, for, for a return to the concept of the commons. You know, what should be commonly owned? What should be in common ownership? Right. Um, which is part of why Engels and Marx used for term communism is that it affirms that emphasis on the commons. You know, uh, Engels stressed this in 
um, a number of his works, such as Principles of Communism um, and so on. And um, it's something that contemporary Marxists uh, return to, um, like Alvaro Garcia Linera, who was vice president under Evo Morales of Bolivia. I mean, he's stressed that importance of the commons, as has Jody Dean, um, as has, uh, you know, a lot of different theorists, including Slavoj Žižek, among many, many others, right? Um, so it seems to me that that emphasis on the commons is perhaps a way out of the sort of neo-feudal uh, technological hellscapes that you mentioned. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Uh, thanks, Alex. Um, well, you, you have a, another article coming out uh, in Green Left Weekly uh, this week that you co-wrote with Tim Scriven entitled Fighting for the Future of the Internet. Uh, without giving the, uh, the full punch away, tell us something of what you're covering in that piece. Well, I mean, it, it's kind of linked to a concept that, you know, I've been developing, uh, which is this concept of deregulated regulation where... For example, increasingly tech companies are sort of appealing to users to justify their own regulations. So, I mean, recently Facebook, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was saying that the community wants them to depoliticize Facebook, right? Which, of course, is a sort of scary situation. And I know that uh, Tim Scriven has been very concerned with this. And I mean, he, he, he kind of came up with the idea of the article because he was looking at, um, you know, for, for GameStop uh, issue and the way that uh, tech companies are trying to, uh, you know, sort of uh, regulate Redditors, as it were, um, or Reddit users, um, you know, uh, because it's endangered the profits of hedge funds, right? So, um, so Tim came up with this idea um, and we worked together on, on the article and it's kind of about for, for, for possible risks of what regulation might mean. So both in terms of the way that uh, increasingly we're being moderated by algorithms uh, because, you know, using people to regulate every post would be prohibitively expensive. But also it, it does raise the possibility, which is a concern that Tim has, uh, especially about the possibility of how the state might start regulating um, online platforms, right? And and for example, you can think of the sort of strange, weird social media platforms that have been developed in China, for example, where the state surveils um, the users and so on. I mean, we don't mention that in the article, but I mean that's you know that that would be a quite dystopian sort of situation, right? Um, and so the idea of state regulation, which is really what social democrats might want and what liberals want, that sort of technocratic mode of management rather than some sort of democratization of the internet is something that uh, both Tim and I are concerned with, you know. Um, and so that's why we, we came together and wrote this article that's coming out in, the, in a future issue of um, the Green Left. Great. Well, um, everyone should check that out. That's um, available in the current issue. Um, and we'll put links to that and also... Um, the article that we've been discussing, Struggling for Eco-Socialism in the Time of Elon Musk. Um, we'll put a link to that in the show description as well. Uh, Alex, where can people uh, check out your other work, buy your book and so forth? 
Well, I mean, the book is kind of um, expensive, but for those listeners who are uh, who 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 attend university, um, you can you, you can try to appeal to you know university libraries to purchase it and so on. It's called Capitalism and the Enchanted Screen: uh, Myths and Allegories in the Digital Age. Uh, the book is. Um, uh, a, a, an investigation of basically for myths around social media. So often we hear these sorts of stories about the idea that um, things like Plato's cave indicate or, or, or the story of Narcissus indicate that people have always been self-absorbed or always absorbed into these sort of phantom states, right? Uh, or these phantom depictions, okay? Um, the other way that these myths are used by the media is to suggest that um, that that technology itself is the dangerous threat, right? And in both cases, when myths and allegories are invoked by the media, it's usually to hide the reality that um, technology is, is privatised um, and is being designed to be addictive, right? Um, I think it was in 2009 that Facebook added the like button, right? And the reason was that they wanted users to, to, to provide more data because what would happen is people would use Facebook and then they go offline, right? They weren't addicted to Facebook, so they wanted to make it more addictive, okay? And so in a way, social media is very much controlled. And, and one way of understanding myths is to understand it in terms of the way that higher powers are able to manipulate nature and the surrounds to um, trick mortals, right? And I think in many ways, this is how capitalism operates, that that myths are used to sort of, so, so that technology has this almost mythic power, but that this enchantment is coming from capitalism itself. Marx has a great analysis of commodity fetishism where he says that, you know, when we look at a table, it's this ordinary sort of object, but in reality, it's, you know, there's a lot of labor that's gone into it that isn't being accounted for when you, you buy or sell um, a table, right? Uh, we don't see how the table's being produced. If you think about all the parts in an iPhone, um, it sort of just completely blows one's mind, right? And very often we enchant these objects in a variety of ways, or rather tech companies do. So for example, in the case of um, your iPhone, you know, you, you speak to it as a, as a person. Siri, can you bring up, or Siri, what is the meaning of life? Or Siri, what is, right? Uh, <laughs> so, so, so that's kind of, Away. In fact, if you ask Siri, uh, you know, Siri, what it's like to be Siri, it will reply, "Hey, you know, my case because you know, um, you know, my name's Alex, of course. Um, you know, it will say, hey, Alex, hey, Alex, hey, Alex. That's kind of what it's like to be Siri, is what it will say, or whatever, you know. Um, so that sort of idea that technology answers back and that technology has this sort of agency um, is something that's very much encouraged by capitalists because then you're not blaming for capitalists, you're blaming for technology, right? Um, yeah. Indeed. Well, uh, I, uh, I, I look forward to getting my hands on a copy. Uh, I don't know whether I can stump up for the ticket price, but I'm sure there's a, a, uh, I have a student in my family who can probably wrangle me a copy somehow. We'll, uh, we'd love to have you back on to um, discuss more of, of your book and the things that it goes into. Um, uh, I want to thank you for joining us today, Alex. It's been fascinating. Um, there's so many ways uh, we could go with this, but we're running up against time. So, uh, Alex Wandsborough, thank you for joining us on Green Left Podcast. 
Thank you. It was a pleasure and an honor. I love contributing to Green Left. It's, it's, it's just such an important magazine. Terrific. Thanks again for your time, Alex. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.